Well, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount still, and will be for the rest of the year, probably. Chapter 6 now, we are making progress. We're moving to a new chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And then verses 16 and following. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. We come now to this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and we're still working under that declaration that the Lord made that except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom. So now the Lord is going to take three particular instances of how the Scribes and Pharisees practice their righteousness and make some note about it. And then he's going to speak to how we, how his disciples, how those who are following him, those who have been regenerated by his spirit, how you are to exercise in these works of righteousness. And they are, of course, as you see there, giving in verses 2 and 4, giving to the needy, the almsgiving, praying in verses 5 through 8, and then in verses 16 and 18, he's going to pick up with a third practice, and that is the practice of fasting. In the middle of that passage, when he's talking about prayer, he's going to give us what we know as the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer. When the disciples had asked Jesus to teach them to pray, this was his Uh, exhortation to them about prayer. So the preaching for the next few weeks is going to be to take these three things, these three practices of righteousness, and talk about what the Lord says, that is of giving, praying, and fasting. And then in the middle of it, we're going to look at the Lord's Prayer. And I believe the plan is to take each petition of the Lord's Prayer and look at it very closely 
because how important prayer is. And so we'll just follow the text in naming these three things, talking about them, and then talking about the Lord's Prayer. Uh, just as doing your homework in advance, you need to know that the confession of faith and the standards of our catechisms have some things to say about prayer and some things to say about the Lord's Prayer. So you might want to look those up. If you don't have a copy of it, you need to get one. If you don't have a copy of the standards, they're right in the back of the hymnal. I can't remember the page number, but way in the back of the hymnal, you'll find all of our Westminster standards, our confession and our catechisms. So we commend that to you as we move into this phase of our study. But this morning, happily, we have just one verse. And uh, so you say, okay, good, it'll be a short sermon. Well, <laughs> pray to that end. But this is what I want us to take a look at. There's quite a bit here, by the way, in this little verse. This is Jesus beginning this, and he has been offering beatitudes. And there's a beatitude contained in this, by the way. We'll see in just a moment. But here, the Lord offers a beware. Not a beatitude, but a beware. And what he's asking his people to do is to be, to be wary. To be wary. To be wary is to be careful to be watchful. There is a, an, an assumption that there's danger, that there's harm, that there's wrongdoing. There's potential for mistake. There's potential for error. There's potential for hazard. And so being wary about something calls us to be watchful and careful and cautious, to walk circumspectly and to be alerted that there's a way to do this that is not pleasing to the Lord. So he offers a beware warning, to be wary. And he speaks of in practicing your righteousness. In practicing your righteousness. This is a familiar phrase to both Testaments, but let me just take you to a couple in the Old Testament. And I, as I studied this this week, uh, came to the... Um, possible conclusion, uh, not entirely, but possible that the Lord may have had uh, these verses in the Old Testament in mind when he was giving this particular uh, warning to his disciples. Uh, first of all is the beatitude for doing righteous. It's found in Psalm 106. It's a psalm of praise to the Lord, verse 3. Psalm 106, verse 3. Blessed are they who observe justice who do righteousness all the time. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Those, the beatitude is to those who do righteousness all the time, practicing righteousness. That's from the psalmist, an, uh, a encouragement, an encouragement to tell us that we are to be practicing righteousness. And, of course, the entire scriptures flesh this out as to what the righteousness really is. But not only the psalm of David, but the preaching of Isaiah the prophet. Uh, let me just point to a passage that I think forms the Old Testament background for Christ's uh, admonition to us in this part of the Sermon on the Mount. And that is Isaiah 58. You may want to make note of that and go back and read the entire uh, sermon or the entire passage by Isaiah but let me just read a couple of uh, verses. To start with, the Lord says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 58, Cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice 
like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression in the house of Jacob their sins, that they seek me daily and to like to know, to know my ways as if there were a nation that did righteousness and do not forsake the judgment of their God. So here in this particular passage, the prophet Isaiah, bringing the word of the Lord, is told to tell the people that they purport to be a nation that does righteousness. And yet what I want you to do, the Lord said to Isaiah, is I want you to declare to them their sins, to show them their transgression. And one of my favorite verses is that very first phrase we read, cry aloud and do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Uh, Paul has noticed this in his ministry. There's just all kinds of little admonitions and, and uh, instructions given to the preachers of the gospel all through the text. Uh, one of my favorite is found in Ezekiel where the Lord tells him to stamp with thy foot and smite with thy hand. I bet you didn't know pulpit pounding was biblical, but it is. In fact, if you pound a pulpit and you don't stomp with your foot, you're being conservative. And this is one of my favorite here. It says, cry aloud, and I love the old King James, cry aloud and spare not. Don't hold anything back. Give it the whole load. Do what the Lord tells us to do. Spurgeon's famous way of saying this was, he says, I know nothing of paring off the rough edges of a doctrine. And so we are to give it straight. That was just to you, Paul. The rest of the people, we're, 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 we're enjoying this fellowship of shop talk here this morning <laughs> about how you, how you go about preaching. But notice what the balance of the, of the uh, uh, sermon in Isaiah is all about. He says, um, they're a nation who, who um, say that they seek me. They delight to draw near to God. That's prayer. That's the subject that Jesus is dealing with in, in this larger passage, isn't it? When have you fasted? Fasting is found in this passage. And giving to alms, bring the homeless and the poor into your house. It is not that you share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house, but you've seen the naked to cover them and so forth. He's dealing with almsgiving in this passage. And finally, he's dealing with uh, uh, the Sabbath here, the keeping of the Sabbath. So prayer and almsgiving are these things that Jesus deals with. We didn't have charges of plagiarism in the Old Testament. Some people are all upset nowadays because some preacher preaches some portion of some, what some previous preacher has preached. And I'm here to tell you that if, if it wasn't for plagiarism, there would be no preaching. In fact, I kind of wonder about these preachers that sort of get together all the little sayings and all the little illustrations and all the, the, the uh, uh, setting forth of a doctrine and kind of put it in their own words and, and, and then get it copyrighted by some big publishing company. And then when some preacher comes along and says the same thing, which is basically paraphrastically what the Bible says, and gets kind of close to the same teaching, he gets brought up on plagiarism charges. Now, I, don't, I believe there's such a thing as plagiarism, but in preaching the gospel, the truth of God should go freely to the people. If you have to collect offerings from people who fund your preaching and you have to preach according to the, 
the itching of the ears that they have in order that they will give their offerings, you are no different, the Old Testament says, than the, the magistrate who takes a bribe or the priest who defrauds the people in the sacrifice. And that is part of the ethics of preaching the gospel is to preach the truth. And no one preacher has a corner on the truth. And the truth of God must go forth. And I grew up in a preacher's home. I went to Bible conferences on weeknights, on school nights, all over this Dallas-Fort Worth area growing up. I've been to Keswick conferences at Schofield Church from the time I was six, seven years. I went to all the big conferences at First Baptist Dallas. I used to go to Pentecostal conferences and tent meetings with Oral Roberts and and A.A. Allen and all of those. I've heard some preaching in my lifetime. In fact, one of the things that I was determined from the time I was five years old until the Lord got a hold of me in my uh, freshman year of college, I resolved one thing I would not be was a preacher. It was was lousy work. It was just too taxing. It was too humiliating. Uh, It was too restricting. I wanted another line of work. Did not want to be a preacher. And I came hard to the ministry. And I was in the ministry for a few years after seminary, and I quit, laid it all down, uh, and walked away from it because I just never wanted to be a preacher. Even now, there's a reluctance because to be an honest preacher before the Lord, you have got to say some things that are not necessarily pleasing to the people that are listening to you. That's why Paul was supported in his ministry, not so much by the churches to whom he ministered, but he collected an offering in the church and went to the poor. But he was supported by co-workers, fellow workers, who his employment as a tent maker along with theirs funded their enterprise and paid for their travels and their upkeep and their lodging and the materials and the things that they needed necessary to preach the gospel. Uh, By the way, the preaching of the gospel to the whole world doesn't take a whole lot. You start thinking about what it takes. It just takes a preacher, some text of scripture, the books and the parchments, especially the parchments. And it takes a bold preacher and a listening audience. It can be done on a street corner under a shade tree, in a marketplace, in a kitchen, in a bedroom, in a living room. It can be done anywhere of any people. We don't have to have massive facilities and massive uh, uh, resources to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the gospel is to go forth freely and the preacher is to cry aloud and spare not. Okay, I've talked about preaching. I really ought to preach a little. (laughs) Here's Here's the thrust of what the Lord's going to say, and he's going to repeat it three times, very poetically, very much in parallelism, in repetition, the three things in terms of of making. But what you're doing when you're practicing your righteousness is you are practicing your righteousness before others to be seen of them. The doing of the righteousness, in which we'll see what that really entails in just a moment, but the main thing is you're doing it to be seen. This goes to a motive, and the word that's used here for being seen is that you may be gazed at, that people may look at you and and, and marvel, or they may look at you and be impressed, and they may look at you and think better of you than probably you deserve for them to think. And the Lord says here there is 
There is uh, no reward. We'll talk as we get into these three passages in the next few weeks. We'll talk a little bit about rewards and so forth. But, but, the, but the warning, the beware, is to not be motivated by the ability to be seen. We'll find that our good works that we do before, before the Lord and for others are to be simple, not convoluted and complex, not ostentatious. They're to be simple. They're to be sincere. All of this arises from the heart. If there's any place more secret than the secret place, it's the very heart. And this work is done in secret, praying the intention and the giving of of alms and the giving to those that need it. And the fasting. These are all things that are are, uh, to be done simple, sincere, and in secret. Let's just take a moment and look at this phrase about the... um, Doing righteous. Doing righteousness. Isaiah preached it. David pronounced a blessing upon it. Jesus teaches it, lays it out for us in the Sermon on the Mount. And then James, the brother of our Lord in his epistle, picks it up and fleshes it out. So let me read a couple of passages that gives you an idea of what it means to practice righteousness and what the implications are for your own personal life and salvation. I'm reading from, uh, from uh, I'm sorry, not James, John. I'm reading from 1 John. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence. And by the way, the appearing of the Lord has something to do with the judgment and the reward that goes with it. We'll say more about that Uh, in the future, when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. First thing, in order to be one who practices righteousness is someone who has experienced the new birth, a regenerated born-again child of God. We've said it over and over almost every sermon that the Sermon on the Mount is for the born-again, regenerated members of God's kingdom brought in by the new birth. And then he continues on. That was chapter 2, chapter 3. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous, referring to the Lord. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God, And who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. You see the tie-in we saw last week with loving our neighbor? Practicing of righteousness is the same thing as we pointed out last week as we read a substantial 
amount in the law and out of the book of Leviticus in the case law about doing those things that God has commanded us to do. And we should be about that business in simplicity and sincerity. We should be about that business doing what God wants us to do without trying to make a show of it. And as I conclude this morning, I want to just simply broaden the application, maybe beyond what the scripture would have, but it's just on my heart. Uh, Just an observation. It seems that what's happened to the church historically, the Western church, the church in the Western hemisphere, from the days of the old Catholic church through the medieval church, through the Reformation and into modern times, is we have moved kind of along a continuum. In the old days, the center of our preaching and our worship and all of our our thing was the sacrament. The centerpiece was the table. Sadly, in the case of the Roman church, it was the table not only primarily but almost exclusively. It was the Lord's Supper. It was seen as as the means of grace, but it was seen as the means of salvation, the actual partaking of it. And so the table was elevated and the table became ceremonial. And there's lifting up and walking around and all kinds of show was made out of the table. As we moved into the Reformed Church, it came to be the sermon. It wasn't the sacrament, but the sermon became central. Sola Scriptura, the Word of God. And our churches, guess what? They became churches with high pulpits mounted high overlooking the people because the centerpiece of the show was the sermon. And instead of meeting in plain chapels and meeting on flat land and, 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 and preaching in, in, the, in the highways and the hedges, it had to be done and it had to be circumscribed with all kinds of paraphernalia and ordination and, and all sorts of things and education and just all number of things. We, we limited and we carved out this worshiping of the high pulpit and the sermon that came from it. Now, by God's grace, just like in the old church, God was still at work saving his people. Those sermons often were orthodox, strong and good and great preaching. But it was when the field preaching, the men like Wesley and Whitfield and Edwards would get out there flat-footed on level ground out in a field and in a barn and in a mine and preach the gospel to the people was when the great revivals occurred. So we've gone from making a show out of the table to making a show out of the sermon. And so the men that we hold up are the men that are really good at at being very attractional in their preaching. It's not the men that have the sound words that are spoken about by Paul to Timothy, but it's the men who have the showy presentations and the attractive deliveries. But we've gone from, from the sacrament to the sermon, to the show. And that's what you see in modern Christianity everywhere. We've tried to make it into show business. In fact, we've gone from the sacrament to the sermon to the stage. You look at modern churches, the way they're building, it's built more like a theater on Broadway than it is built like a house of prayer. And we have everything. We have the lights. We have the sound systems. And then it goes beyond that. We know how to dim the lights. We know how to bring on the spotlights. It looks like a rock show. We bring on the performers. 
And so it's all made to appeal to the senses. It's the eyes seeing the light. It's the ears hearing the thunderous sound and the heavy instrumentation and amplification. And it's become a show. We don't do it here. Well, maybe we do. I don't know. I'll let you judge that for yourself. But let me tell you a couple of extreme examples as I close. One of them is a church that I heard about about 25 years ago, that long ago, in Arizona, church of a different denomination, mainline denomination, who hired a consulting firm that was based out of the Walt Disney Company with the express purpose of showing the people how to put on a show that appeals to people. If you've ever been to Disneyland or Disney World, you know that it's a small world after all. <laughs> you also know that it, it's plenty of show business. And this church had hired this Disney company, goes around to churches and shows them how to put on the show that people will enjoy, that will move them, that will stimulate them. I remember going to Disney one time and there was a, there was a, a particular part of the show called the People Mover. And he was a motivational speaker with all kinds of paraphernalia around him, sights and signs that would, that would really affect you. It affected me. It was designed to hit the emotions and to, and to hit the glitz of the eye. I'm afraid our churches are moving in that direction somewhat. That's an, an example from about a quarter century ago. Let me tell you something that's happening right now. Out on the West Coast, there's a church that has all of that, but they've gone way beyond that. They darken, they bring spotlights in, and they put gold dust in the air. And it flicks around, and it makes a hologram, and they're calling that the presence of the Holy Spirit. And people are falling down. You can watch it on YouTube. Look it up. It, it, they're falling down, and they're carrying on. And this is an evangelical church. This is not some weird cultic church. And that's where we're, that's where we're headed if we're not careful. We should not let our ministry, our service, our, our, our practicing of our righteousness before God become anywhere near a show. That's enough.